Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. So, I give him a salute, and he gives me one of those half-Hitler salutes, you know, down low, very cool. Right. You know? Right. Here's what you forget. Yeah. He doesn't say Heil Hitler. Uh-huh. Isn't that funny? The Canadian past has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. We have Josh Nob joining us today. Uh, Josh, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about Yale, a little bit more about Yale. You're at Yale. What do you think of the protests that have been going on at your campus? Oh, well, friends, first I want to say it's so great to be on your podcast. Always great to have you. To get a better sense of the campus climate, I think really instead of consulting our intuitions from the armchair, what we need to do is go out and do experiments and surveys in the real world using the methods of the cognitive sciences. <laughs> nice. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, this is a bucket list checked off for me. This is finally. You know how long Tamler has wanted to get fake Josh Nob on, on this podcast? I have had my arm twisted into this. As soon as you, you did it at a bar in Durham, I remember. Yeah. Yeah, and that's right. Yeah. So, so then, okay. Uh, I'm David Pizarro from so we actually University, don't. and we actually don't have Josh Nob. We have the next, the, the next best thing, or the better thing, uh, oh. which is Vlad Chituk. Chituk. Chituk, like chicken tuck. No one in the history of the universe has ever pronounced my name right. It's okay. What is it? I'm not. Chituk. It's like chicken tuck. Chituk. Chituk. Like Chituk or gerbs, like I don't know. That's don't. Chituk. Oh, that was a bad joke. Don't include that. <laughs> Uh, ch- like Chituk, Chicken Tuck. I say Chicken Tuck. We'll edit that out, don't worry. And should I, should I introduce myself, what, what I do? Yes. yes. Uh, I'm an associate in research uh, at Duke University. I work in the Center for Advanced Hindsight, uh, which is Dan Ariely's research group down there. Uh, I uh, did my undergrad uh, at Yale, which is, I guess, why I'm sort of here. And um, I want to make it clear I have nothing but the utmost respect and admiration for Josh Nob. He's the sweetest, most brilliant man. David and is I, he, though? I he mean... Is, honest to God, honest to God. He's, like, the most generous with his time. He's way better than Eddie Namias. <laughs> I don't know. I think Eddie, you know, his faults are more transparent. His character flaws are more on the surface, you know? I think with Josh Nob, it runs... There's a kind of sinisterness that... Really? He's, like, a secret supervillain? Oh, no, man. He's just waiting, you know? I've... <laughs> First of all, he's been radicalized by the social sciences. I mean, that's oh clear. Oh, is that as, as not is, cool? So, so Vlad, Vlad worked with uh, Paul Bloom, Larry Santos. Yeah, all your favorite guests. It's just uh, you guys have great taste in podcast guests, and I apparently had good taste, or, or these professors at least had 
the, the charitable spirit to let me hang out with them while I was at Yale. So. Well, we have another guest that's joining us in just a segment oh. that I recorded. Yeah. Um, my stepmother, Christina Hoff Summers, on the widespread threat that you and your ilk... <laughs> my ilk, yes. Um, oh. ...are posing to academic freedom and to just general resilience in the if face there's, of if there's one thing i hate it's resilience and freedom so i'm glad we're finally getting to, to, <laughs> to really uh, debate this so <laughs> speaking of dave i don't know how comfortable you are talking about the san bernardino shooting because oh, this yeah. happened where your parents are but oh, i did want to yeah. talk about an article that was written in the wake of the shooting I mean, that's fine. Yeah, this is the, the shooting was uh, like literally two miles, maybe from. It. So I have family and my my parents, my aunt and uncle, and then a ton of friends from Loma Linda um, who are affiliated with there. I mean, none none of them were were hurt, but but the counterfactual there are people who I know who who worked there, who took their kids there. Oof, that's um, unbelievable. So I mean, but nonetheless, fourteen people died just because I didn't know them doesn't make it better. <laughs> but yeah. but yeah, it was a rough day, like trying to figure out. When the list of victims came, finally was published. I was like reading it with trembling hands. Like, but yeah, but I don't know what article. Uh, so it, it it actually in a in a way relates to the topic of the podcast, which is campus activism right now and this new generation of students. You, Vlad, although you know your recent graduate of Yale, being coddled, spoiled, and <laughs> speaking of coddled, fragile. This article that the New York Times published after the San Bernardino shooting, I, I, I don't know. I found it like I, I found it to be the, like one of the dumbest things I'd ever read. And also, so it was a it, what I guess they did is they asked people to write in to say whether they were scared now, you know, based on what happened in Paris and what happened in San Bernardino. And the American people came strong with this. I guess 5,000 people wrote in. And I just want to read a couple of <laughs> quotes from this. So, here, so here's how it starts. It goes, Charlie! Nope. <laughs> God damn it. He doesn't want me to do this. The killings are happening too often, bunched too close together at places you would never imagine. And then a little later, a wide expanse of America's populace finds itself engulfed in a collective fear, a fear tinged with confusion and exasperation and a broad brew of emotions. This is a news article, by the way. The fear of the ordinary, going to work, eating a meal in a restaurant, sending children to school, watching a movie. Wendy Malloy, Tamp from Tampa, Florida, said she now worried about being caught in an attack on a daily basis just doing what anybody does. When my son gets out of the car in the morning and walks into his high school, when I drop him off at his part-time job at a supermarket, when we go to movies, concerts, and festivals, when I walk into my office, it is a constant grinding anxiety, and it gets louder every single day. And this is my favorite. As one woman, young woman from Massachusetts put it, the guy in the corner always looking at his watch or the woman reaching into her bag too quickly. Of course, the man is probably wondering where his date is already. Of course, the odds are the woman simply heard her cell phone vibrate. 
the odds. The odds are the woman <laughs> who's reaching into her purse just heard her cell phone ring. But is it? Could it be? Must I run? <laughs> I mean, this is... You want to talk coddled, soft. This is the American people showing that they are softer than jello, softer than like puppy fur, softer than a, a baby's ass. If a baby's ass is, yeah, a baby's ass is pretty soft. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, but defend I, I, your boys because I know you're going to. Well, no, I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm not sure what point you're trying to make. In the wake of a terrorist attack, people are going to be afraid. Those people who are asked whether they're afraid are going to be the ones who write in. And what you have is strung together quotes from letters to the New York Times. I don't I, I do think that it's not it's a reasonable like we have actual data like in the months following 9-11 um, people were actually afraid of airplanes and so they drove their car like a lot more and traffic fatalities went up so right. like so so yeah like mass shootings freak people out and we're very bad at at probabilities and we're very good at paying attention to the vividness of the news, which I think I take it as the point in general, like the vividness of the news captures our attention. Just like Charlie's barking. That was Omar. And, and I'm, Stop it, Omar. I'm, I'm confused by the use of the word coddling here because you're making it sound like it's a cultural thing. I, I do. I think we're a bunch of cowards. No, we're just this, people doing what people do. I mean, this is, this is how our brains work. You're going to see this everywhere. No, you are not. I can get after a terrorist attack, people are more afraid of terrorist attacks. Are you serious? I have that's that's as universal a response, I think, as there is. I, I okay, that's fine, but you didn't see this in Israel. You didn't see people wouldn't no, be no, caught I mean, dead people running. I'm accustomed to it, but I don't remember you saying anything like this about the Boston Marathon attack, you know, mass. But the Boston Marathon attack was terrible, but it didn't make me like worried now that, no, uh, you know, anytime I go to a sporting event. No, but it, but it, if, if it were. If people went on the street and just asked random people whether they were nervous because of that, you would get some portion of them saying stuff like that right now. Yeah. If the decision to write it up like that as a journalist article is just, you know, the, but is it? Could it be? Journalist. Must I run? I mean, terrorism works. <laughs> I guess yeah. that's the point. Ter- terrorism works. Yeah. It's called terrorism for a reason. It's not just. Well, then people should just like like that should that should be a signal to people that they need to uh, toughen up a little bit like your whole generation. Uh, I don't know about that. That seems. You don't think people need to be a little smarter? Like this is why Trump gets so much play is because people are scared of ISIS infiltrating this country and that's why a bunch of syrian refugees can't find homes and that's why the trump is leading the polls and iowans want to ban islam i mean fear-mongering works it's it, the question isn't though whether people should not be afraid the question is what kind of solution to that fear works the best and i agree with you that not allowing certain refugees to enter isn't just doesn't follow from being afraid that we should be xenophobic well, you know, what follows is that we should put in into measure whatever whatever practical solutions there are 
I, I, I guess I think I'm, I, my reaction is more just anger at the cowardice of this whole thing. So, so I mean, not I, and the irrationality. I don't, of it. I don't think it's cowardly to say that I'm a, that people are afraid. Like when when their neighborhood has been, you know, when you know thirty people were sh- sprayed with. No, no, no. But this weapons. isn't. Uh, if your parents wrote in, that's different. This is a person in Tampa, a person in Green Bay, person in somewhere in Massachusetts. But that makes the counterfactual salient then. It's like, oh, people just kind of going about their lives at a holiday party can get shot. Where else can you get shot? I mean, you, you don't, it's not like a place-specific thing. Right. And, and I'll tell you what pisses me off is that like when people report the stats on, on quote-unquote mass shootings, um, they're conveniently all of a sudden including gang violence. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. When all throughout the rest of the year, they never say shit about like the actual gang violence that's going on. And now when it's convenient, uh, they toss that in there. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is all that gang violence is, is your average white Joe in the in the U.S. is like untouched by that violence. Yeah. And like we feel touched like the nor- like, you know, middle class yeah. white Americans in small towns all of a sudden feel like they're touched by this you know, in a way that I agree is irrational. But I don't think it's coddling. I just think it's cowardly. It's cowardly. They need to be coddled in the sense they need to feel safe. They need to feel like there's apps, even though, you know, they get in their car. And obviously, I mean, you know, it's a much greater risk that they'll get into an act, a car accident, a fatal car accident than than be victims of terrorist attacks. But set that aside. You just should be a little braver about these things. So so I'm curious. So if you're going to design. If you yeah. were to be like a choice architect and you're going to design a nudge or an intervention to fix this problem, your policy proposal would be just tell people to toughen up. And yeah, being like if I was serious? Obama really? right now, if a second serious? term, cri- 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 yeah, stop being such a bunch of crybabies. <gasps> oh my God. This is character well, spider phobia too. <laughs> this is like, this is the whole point of being a second term. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I would tell Eliza if she's scared of something that she shouldn't be scared of. You know, like, I don't want to go into the garage. Like, what, you know, no, you, you go like, oh, into the actually, garage. You want to, like, explain to her the relative risks. You want to sort of try to make other information. Well, she knows like, the oh, rel- just, there's nobody there. You little brat. You want, you want, you'd be like, oh, you're too coddled. We're coddling you too much. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. All right. I don't know if we're going to agree. Yeah, so, <laughs> I knew you'd defend, though. Like, I am the hero of the coddled. Uh, you I know. am the coddled defender. <laughs> yeah, the okay. champion of the coddled. Uh, all I'll say is this, is that experiencing fear doesn't make you weak. Well, right. But, but, but whining about it does make you weak. I, I, like, they just Take asked, a little stole. Yeah, they they asked, just asked people and they answered. <laughs> it's a constant grinding anxiety. I want to hear your therapy sessions. <laughs> No, I, I I feel like uh, being one of the most disadvantaged students in an Ivy League must have really, really toughened you up. Yeah, being Jewish at Penn, holy shit. <laughs> That's almost as bad as being Jewish at Syracuse or Brandeis. Uh, okay, so so one of the reasons we're recording this episode is the last episode, or two episodes ago, where we talked about the, the student protests. Uh, we got a lot of feedback, and um, I, I guess that that it was enough that it made us want to just talk a little bit more. In part, my motivation is to clarify a little bit and really to distinguish between what I think we were saying, or at least what I was saying and what I wasn't saying. Um, And Vlad is actually one of the people who wrote us like a thesis. Yeah. I've heard Um, a stupid, it was like there were four subsections and each were like that. It was, it's a good email. 
I'm weird. glad. I'm pretty like I've also been exchanging very long emails with Paul Bloom about this, and I'm like 90 percent sure like my output over the last two weeks could like fill a, a new Sam Harris book. That is so <laughs> like, much. You should see his hands. Like he can't even Vlad can't even masturbate anymore. Uh, it's like uh, he has to find like what to do in those three hours that he would normally must I be. must I run? <laughs> must. Don't you think about it a little bit every once in a while? Masturbating all the no. time. Yeah, running, running from someone reaching. Uh, no. She might be reaching for her vibrator. I mean, <laughs> um, chances are it's just. Chances a vib- are it's just her vibrator. It's like the Fight Club thing. Sometimes it's a dildo. My suitcase was vibrating. Nine times out of ten, it's an electric razor. Every once in a while, it's a dildo. Of course, it's company policy never to imply ownership in the event of a dildo. We have to use the indefinite article, a dildo, never your dildo. <laughs> so uh, so in order to prepare, you, we both listened to the interview with, with, uh, that you did with your uh, stepmom. So do you want to pr- do a little what? preamble? <laughs> Yeah, and then we'll, should we? Are we going to read the emails in the next segment? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. I'm, okay. I'm, so you know, sometimes with Dave, I play the role more the role of the kind of conservative or at least less radical left wing uh, member of our podcast. But when I'm with my stepmother, it's it, it just it's the reverse because she is a somewhat notorious well how would you describe her because i don't know exactly how people view her you know people of your ilk my, my mom said if i don't have nice things to say she shouldn't say anything at all <laughs> so i mean i just she's she's reactionary she's one of those reactionary figures who's like modern feminism pc cultures and is completely astray you know we're all these coddle babies well um, she's okay <laughs> we can talk about that later she yeah. she wrote uh, a book in the mid 90s i think called um who stole feminism where she was reacting against certain strains of the feminist community then wrote a book that i actually really liked it's my favorite of her books called the war against boys and that was just a few years after that and then more recently has been very much involved you know in that you know there's a whole slew of people and and they're all pundits they're all pundits who mm. who are who are alarmed and are you saying pundit pundit okay. yeah they're like political writers commentators they're, they're not on campuses with the exception of of height it's this industry of of reacting to the latest pc outrage on yeah. campus or what they view as pc outrages and she's very much a part of that through her writing and through her um factual feminist youtube so we talked we had a little segment my stepmother who's a very nice person and i'm sure she you does would seem like delightful her. she does seem delightful. <laughs> yeah. like, i'm sure on an interpersonal level we would get along great it's just i yeah. find her political views abhorrent that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah well we can talk about that yeah. so so let's listen to that and then we'll come back
welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. All right. Um, this is just me. No Dave here for right now. This is my revenge for him having Dan Ariely on those few times and excluding me from those conversations. And I have with me someone who a couple people on Twitter have uh, recommended that we bring on the podcast. And I don't know if they know my connection to this person, but it is my stepmother and enemy of all women, all progress in women's rights, an enemy of equal pay for equal work, Christina Hoff Summers. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, what a what a gracious welcome from you, Tamler, and emphasis on Summers. This is how I'm treated. I am based mom to all the world, but to my own stepson, all right, so let's explain this because Christina is now our second guest who has been on the Joe Rogan podcast. Did you did you say anything about us to Joe Rogan? I don't think so. It didn't come up, but next time I will. So this is this is what I get: a stepmother who doesn't even mention our podcast. Well, to Joe I, Rogan. also I don't know that he would be interested in a squishy liberal who <laughs> can't acknowledge that we're in a serious trouble with basic rights on the campus. What would I, what would I say? <laughs> okay, we'll get to that. But I want to, I want to, first of all, get to this based mom thing, because this came up right on the Joe Rogan podcast. Apparently, you are known as based mom to a community of people who are in their basement playing video games instead of dating, getting out oh, in the fresh air. There he goes with the stereotypes about gamers. This is – someday people will understand that the gamers have been maligned and what the press says about Gamergate is about as legitimate as what they said about Rolling Stone. But never mind. I digress. I am based mom to the Which gamers. means what? Well, I originally thought it meant cool, which, as you know, I'm a cool mom. That's fine. Will you yes. agree with that? I would definitely agree with that. I've done more drugs with oh, my no, stuff. <laughs> this is defamatory. <laughs> and <clears throat> moving on. So based means grounded, uh, no nonsense, no BS. No bullshit. Well, You yes. can say that. In front of my son? Okay, <laughs> yeah. no bullshit. Okay, well, I, I mean, I would agree with that, too, even though we're not necessarily on the same side of, of all the issues. And you also have your own, well, what is it? It's a YouTube. It's a podcast. It's something, a slightly higher form of communication. It's a video on YouTube every week, supposedly, uh, in which I correct a myth. And uh, just to correct the biggest myth of all was just now uh, stated on this show, uh, far from being anti-feminist, I am proudly feminist. My mother was a feminist, but I, I believe in equity feminism. I, I want for women what I want for everyone, fair treatment, no discrimination. I part company with today's hardline, sex-phobic, paranoid, conspiracy theories, it, it, feminisms, because I, they've gone off the deep end. So I try to correct their myths, their excesses. How do and I get? so you are not a fictional feminist. You are a... Genuine, based feminist. But I'm setting it up for you and your YouTube channel. Factual feminist. <laughs> so, okay. Here is an issue where we genuinely disagree. The previous episode, two before this one, we we discussed the Yale protests and, you know, the stuff that's going on at Amherst and their ridiculous list of demands. And um, I think we both agree in having not as much sympathy 
at least with certain elements of the activist community at some of those campuses. Where I disagree with you is I don't think that this is a widespread problem or a serious threat to academic freedom in the United States and that there is this new generation of students is a caught the coddled generation, right? The, I think that is true of a very small percentage of students on a very small percentage of campuses and they tend to be the most wealthy and privileged campuses, most wealthy and privileged students and that your average student oh. or most students are the the opposite of coddled. They work really hard acquiring massive debt. And so they're, they're, they're working, they're working jobs. They're taking care of their family. They're taking five classes and they're working their asses off. To call them coddled is to me offensive. Right. Well, um, and actually I, I, th I do think there's a silent majority of reasonable students, but they are not the vocal ones on campus. And unlike you, I am aware of what is at stake, and you seem to be indifferent about the fact that we have had sort of outbreaks of fanaticism. Even one outbreak of fanaticism is distressing, but we have had dozens, and unlike you, I've actually looked at the materials, looked at the facts, and you see, yes, it's Yale, and it's UCLA, and it's Oberlin. Northwestern. God knows it's Oberlin. Well, we'll talk about every... that. Every single article on this issue brings up Oberlin. Well, because uh, if Oberlin gets any more PC, it will vaporize. I mean, you just can't but survive. But Oberlin wait, wait, wait. has always been like that, no, right? Okay, but it's happened at Guilford University. Is that on your list of elite schools? We have had outbreaks of fanaticism at, at, at Beloit. We have had them at Eastern Michigan University. You are in denial, Tamler. There are little little cohorts. I agree. It's not the majority. The majority has not yet found its voice, but they will. At least I'm waiting for that because we need a free speech movement. And the fact that you're not on my side suggests to me that you, well, it suggests to me you haven't read your John Stuart Mill. But see, I, this is more a question of to what extent this threat is a genuine threat or a fringe group of students who have always been with us, who was with us 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when I went to school. It's no, it's no different except that there's okay, an internet okay, now. Excuse me. Yeah. When you were going to school, how many teachers were investigated, as we saw Laura Kipnis at Northwestern, investigated, formal investigation for an article she wrote in the Chronicle of Higher Education? How many deans have lost a job, as happened at Claremont McKenna, uh, for writing a, a poorly worded email? She lost her job. How many, how many times have you seen students organize and 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 form a mob around a, a, a dean or a professor, I forget what he was, at Yale University and his wife. And then at the same time, there was a free speech uh, lecture and someone was someone spit on a student. How, that did not happen. I yeah, think I it did know. happen. The, it's the, just that we didn't know about it because there was no Internet. And okay. so if a Claremont McKenna dean resigns over some bullshit, and I don't know the details of that case, but if that happened, we would not have known about it. And here is what what bugs me. And here's where I think all the people who are writing about this or most of them, I guess John Haidt is technically on campus. And, you know, I love John Haidt. I interviewed him for my book. But. Most of the people who write about this aren't on campuses themselves, and I am. 
I teach at a university. I I say whatever the whatever the hell I want. Oh, notice in, you didn't use the F word. I say whatever the fuck I want. <laughs> Stop that. <laughs> in my classes. And I've done this podcast for uh, over three years. And I give talks at conferences. And you know me, right? I mean, to a fault. I don't self-censor. And, and this worries me because I think he could get in trouble because he's he's in denial about professors and it can be two years later and maybe it just hasn't reached your school yet, although I suspect it has. You just don't know it. But there are little groups of hypersensitive students who have been empowered and who feel that they're, that the purpose of a university is to make them feel comfortable. And if they are if they are made to feel uncomfortable, if they suffer from microaggressions or nano or you know any kind of aggression they they go to the dean they go to the authorities and this is new this has not happened i don't even know if it's happened i can't think of any kind of uprising historically where people wanted censorship because dissident ideas gave them ptsd do you remember um this happened the year after i graduated oh, at buffalo <laughs> i knew you were going to bring that up well yeah right i mean so this was a thing at um the university of pennsylvania when i was a i had just graduated so it was 1993 i think you got involved in this cuz it was no don't bring that up what no, oh no 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 no, no, no i won't bring that up although i should <laughs> no 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 don't no. <laughs> I, I may tell I wrote, that story i wrote to a teacher but oh my she god i was a helicopter mother let's face it no it was more that you used me to um no i felt you were harmed but the point is you you were having the same conversation in 1993 that 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 you're having now yeah, i mean these that, things in that case, happen he wrote a paper and the teacher wrote in the margin, he wrote in the paper that uh, conditions for, for uh, by the way, he was an English major, but that, whatever that was about, we begged him not to do it. It wasn't practical. That's not true. We didn't beg you? Not I guess to be it, an English major? No. Uh, never mind. I don't want to go into that story. Let's come into the, to, to today where we find on the campus, even the president, you're not upset, but President Obama is distressed and twice he's addressed this issue of political correctness on the campus. And he said that it, if you don't allow dissident opinions, if you don't encourage open discourse, you will just lapse into dogmatism. And it, it's interesting that the president is aware of this. And you'll say, well, he's not on campus. But well, he, but th I think this is important because because it's not just me, right? I know a lot of people. I go to, I have a lot of friends in academia, and nobody I know has been personally affected or threatened or felt like they have to self self censor. And here's my uh, idea, and I don't know if it's true or not, but okay. but let All me right. right. but let me hear why you think it's not true. Okay. If you have a good heart. If you have a good heart, aside from implicit biases and unconscious biases that we all have and we all will always have, if overall you're a good person, then you will be fine. For the most part, aside from isolated cases. Well, you are living in some kind of weird time warp or you've been drinking, which is perfectly possible. Well, we're both drinking. Oh, uh, not, um, this is oh, <laughs> Tamler. <laughs> by, by, by the way, how did you not get stoned on Joe Rogan? I thought uh, everybody, I, I thought you had to. It didn't come up. Hmm. He was polite, mostly. Although there was, I don't know, a discussion of furries. Still curious about that. Do you know about that? Don't tell no, me. I don't want to know. Actually, Let's, uh, okay, forget know. it. Let's I move on. Furries? Don't look it up. So, so first of all, what is so annoying to me and offensive, really, 
you seem to think your own experience. I don't know anybody. It hasn't happened to me. Since when is that a basis for generalization? Can we consider some polls? The Pew Research Center took a poll and they asked millennials, well, they asked a cross-section of the population, whether or not they thought you, they thought you should be punished by the government. Should the government be able to censor uh, speech that was offensive to minorities? Very interesting. Only 12% of people my mom's age, the World War II generation, only 12% of them said, yes, you should be punished by the government. 40% of millennials, 40%. This was debunked. It was not debunked. It was debunked. Jesse Single. Oh, Jesse Single. Okay. New York Magazine activist, journalist. Moving on, the American Association of Colleges and Universities did a study and also found that there's high levels of... Uh, fear on campus about expressing an honest opinion. There is data that students are now less willing to say what they think. Do do you honestly think that on campuses like UCLA or Eastern Michigan University that students feel free to just say what's on their mind? I mean, for the most part, right? You can't say racist shit. Well, what? See, that's the question. What is racist shit? But that's the thing. It's racist. Is it racist to question the value of affirmative action? Yes or no? Oh, God, you think yes. I know. I don't. But I don't. I I think you can question the value of affirmative action. Well, but that's considered racist. We do. Like, I. We're not using your campus as an example. Fine, but... uh, Oh, do you think it's okay? Do you think it's sexist to question whether or not there's a rape culture? No, I don't. Okay, but that can trigger massive protests and and threats on Facebook and hysteria. It's happened to me. It happened to two two feminists went to Brown University to to debate the rape culture, and they they organized a safe room for the young women to flee that had puppy dogs and and Play-Doh and bubbles. There's been, all of this is going on in feminism and you've ignored it. And it's an infantilization of women and this kind of fainting couch feminism. You've ignored these trends. But my point is, my point is it's been easy to ignore because it hasn't come up. You know, this whole thing about Oh, it about hasn't come up warnings. in Texas. It, well. And I'm sure it has. Okay, Texans, call in, send emails about what's happened on your campus because Tamler needs help here, understanding. See, I can't be right. You can be right because, you know, there's always going to be some incident. And and what could happen that would make you say that I was right? You know what? For years, I always worried that you might be right. And and so I held back and I thought maybe Tamler's right. Maybe I'm exaggerating. But then what happened is what I had initially identified as, as... is, you know, repressive forces, they gained power. They came to power. And now we see what happens. And and I now think that it's gone so far, it's hard for me to believe that you don't see it. So I reverse it and say, what would count as evidence for you that it's not a problem? Well, I think this is an issue, actually. I, I think that Whenever one of these things pop up, I can always say this is an isolated case. And whenever one of these things doesn't pop up, which is most of the time. Most of the time. Hundreds of schools, polls (laughs) showing a majority of kids are worried about what they say. Have you read the Jesse Single thing about the polls? Because I found that pretty persuasive. Uh, You're right. I should check it out. I haven't seen it. all, all I know is I've never gotten an email saying that um, you should have trigger warnings on your syllabus. You know what? And the mother in me is now afraid. They don't exist I'm on a- any syllabus. Like, there's no university that has a policy that you have to put trigger warnings on your syllabi. And yet you would think from reading 
the you know slate and the new republic and the atlantic who just this is to them pretty much the only thing that's going on in the world right now you would think that Every campus in America forces their professors to put trigger warnings on their syllabi. Tamla, you're not understanding the problem here. Oh, I remember now the third poll of students, college students, commissioned by Yale University Buckley program, and they uh, did a, you know, they looked at a scientific sample of college students. Sixty-three percent were in favor of trigger warnings. When they explained, they thought they were a good idea. Just that if should you be phrase the question in a certain way then people are going to say yes. And in fact, look, there are things I've done a trigger warning for. I have a interview in the upcoming edition of the book with Tage Rye and Alan Fisk, and we talk about, there's a section in their book where they say, I mean, talk about something that you say could never happen, right? They have a, a whole thing in their book that rape is a moral act. You know, it, it's, a, it, it's obviously they're horrified by the action, but by their definition of moral, how they define moral, which involves performing an action that addresses an aspect of a relationship, it counts as moral. And that's obviously very controversial and they've gotten a lot of shit for it, but they've been able to give their talks and they have a book and it's out there right now. There's nobody picketing them. They're and you both issued a trigger warning for this? No, in the, in the book, I said, because we're talking about, they talk about gang rape and the fact that that's often the, the goal there is for communal bonds and they're, you know, it, it gets very explicit. The gang rape? Like, oh, what? They. Right. I mean, don't you think, isn't it, isn't it okay to have a trigger warning there? And again, it's not a tr the, the way it's phrased it's is this way, the following section may be distressing for some readers. There's nothing wrong with that. But my oh, point, oh, wait but a minute. my, then you need a trigger warning for everything. No, you for, don't. Oh, for, oh, for Anne Frank's uh, diary? That, that, but you don't need it for Anne Frank's yes, diary. Yes, you do. That, that, that's haunting and it can, it can, it can be so traumatized. I, I, I don't do it for any other interview. Oh, because I don't you do only, yeah, right. You only do it for that because, because of hyper because I, sensitivity. No, no. I, I, I didn't even think of it as a trigger warning. It only came to me later. Like, it was just natural to put it in. It was just a natural thing. It was like, holy shit, this, this is going to be, even for my interviews in this book, this is going to be a little controversial for some readers and just put it in there. It's a exactly. censor. The you put it I in didn't censor it. You put it in. Because you were aware that it was controversial, not that it had merit. Would you put it in for a discussion I of do think genocide? Would you put it in for a discussion of, uh, I don't know, any horrific crime? And and and. and I, but it, no, I don't, and I don't have to. And there's because I, of this is politically charged because there's a group of people that insist on 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 being given special protections. We never had this before in feminism. We fought to have open discussions about about crimes against women. And then if if somebody had insane ideas, you, the best way to fight them, it's the cliche now, but the best way to fight bad ideas is with better ideas. And you and and then to think to insulate readers from something that's going to traumatize them. And by the way, this whole thing about trigger warnings, it has no basis in 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 clinical psychology. It's a, it's a political strategy for for in a, in a power grab by a small group of highly political aggressive feminists. So, are you against that, Eliza? Beloved grand, darling granddaughter. Yeah, beloved darling granddaughter says does her little intro to this show saying that the discussion has bad words and inappropriate jokes. Is that something that you consider to be a creeping threat to humanity? No, that's an amusing little, that's totally, it's, it's funny. Okay. If the trigger warnings like were, a, if the trigger warnings are funny and charming and have the most beautiful little girl in the world, that's fine. 
<laughs> okay. All right. I'll let you have the last word on this. Um, what is the thing that you think, as a professor, David Pizarro, as professors, David Pizarro and I should be most worried about? You and Dave should be most worried about your relationship. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. But as a mother, I'm just saying, and well, also and Dave's, Dave's anti-Semitism. Yeah, well, that's that's a, been a running problem. And I think that's triggering for a lot of listeners. Okay, well, thank you so much. We'll figure out what will make either one of us right. And when we do that, and then when we find out, we'll have you back on. Great. Thank you, sweetie. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. One thing I sort of want to say about that is we were talking about a very specific issue, which is how, how widespread some of this phenomena is within the academic community, how much of a threat it poses to academic freedom. And we really weren't discussing whether any a given protest is legitimate or not legitimate in a given case. But I but I don't want it to be misconstrued as dismissing all the protests that are going on because I think in some of the cases, the 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 as we'll talk about, the protests either are effective or at the very least they are responding to real real issues. So yeah, so I I, I think but I do think that that discussion of the prevalence ha does have a tacit assumption underlying it that that if you know as 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 uh, your mom said, even one would be be horrible. And so it, I think there is this underlying assumption that any time anytime students challenge. But, well, not even one legitimate protest, but even one Laura, you know, Laura Kipnis or. Yeah, I, I think the category of non-legitimate protests is much higher in her mind than yeah. it is in mine and maybe in yours. Right. So I think that she lumps together. And this is one thing that I don't I used just said it, but I do. You know, my friend Damani wrote in and, and was saying, like, we shouldn't. At the very least, we should distinguish between like things like Missouri and things like, like Yale, not not to say that they are um, not both legitimate, but rather to say that they are really different situations um, and people are responding to very different different things. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, the, the Missouri thing, we almost shouldn't have talked about it at all because I don't think either of us knew enough about it. Right. And, I, and yeah. we certainly, I thought, were pretty upfront well, about that. And, you know, we're more focused in any objections we had on, on certain aspects of the Yale thing. So let's talk about Yale because now we have a Yale... <laughs> 
Yale a recent. When did you graduate? I graduated in 2012. So okay. not that recent, but more recent than most and, probably. Yeah. And if you don't know, I mean, we've mentioned Vlad. We mentioned him before as somebody who's written about this stuff. Um, and and, and tweeted about think. it probably pretty badly. Yeah. I mean, actually, <laughs> so, so right. Paul, Paul Bloom. Yeah. But Paul Bloom was saying like that there's nobody like Vlad to get to rile him up. I got like, I got Paul Bloom pissed off on Facebook. Yeah. Which apparently has never happened. Um, so I don't, I don't mean to do this. I think How did you I get him somewhat, pissed off? I don't think, yeah. I like, posted something about, so I had this Facebook friend, who's, and he was, he was this uh, Tory guy at Yale. Tory was like the, the sort of, you know, he'd wear bow ties and stuff. I don't know if he was actually in the Tories, but he seemed to be in that crowd. And he's very charming, very wonderful, uh, love him to death. I'm always very happy to see him. But everything he posts on Facebook is bad. And he right. was super hung up on the fact that the, the student in that video that uh, Greg Lukianoff shot against deal policy, uh, which, <laughs> you know, down the line ended up leading to her getting outed on the Internet and she got death threats and had to shut down on social media. So I'm a little salty about that. She, she was saying to, to the Christakis, to, to, to Nick Christakis, saying, like, you know, be quiet. I want to, you know, I'm, I'm talking. Right, right. No, we, we played um, that. We, we played, played, a, we played the, the and, video. Last and he was very hung up on how the fact that that was, like, indicative of, like, the, the problem of free speech on campuses. And there was this video I saw of this, maybe you guys have seen it, it's like a town hall meeting where this Muslim engineer is proposing building a mosque and then just all these angry conservative white people get up and start yelling at him to like shut up and do all this stuff and I was like, oh, I'm sure there's going to be an equal amount of outrage from the free speech camp about this religious minority being persecuted as they did about right. this, you know, black woman yelling at, uh, you know, a Yale professor. And then I, I guess Paul Bloom took that in a very, he yeah. took that the wrong way. Although to take you to task, would, would you certainly didn't respond the same way to both of them. Exactly. <laughs> that was my thought when you posted that, because I saw that you posted that too. Is right. there, there are a lot of relevant and important differences, which maybe we can go in. But, um, <laughs> well, you know, you know, Yale professors aren't exactly a persecuted minority whose free speech is being threatened contra what you know your, your stepmother might say um you know i think i think the average muslim in america is probably in a worse position than a yale professor uh, but uh, on the other hand erica christakis has announced that she's not going to be teaching at yale yeah and uh, I, I think that's so, a shame well how much do you think it's a shame Get, no, I mean, like, look, got- look, listen i genuinely do um i think her email was bad and i think it was tone deaf and i think it failed on its own terms um, All right, let's talk about that. Why? Okay. So, so, so this is what I sort of take her broad problem to be. She said um, this to the Office of Intercultural, Intercultural Affairs Committee sent out this email, the least objectionable email you could possibly imagine, just saying like, hey, guys, be considerate about what you wear for Halloween. Um, you know, be the right. sort of Yale student we all know you to be. Like, don't be an asshole, basically. It didn't right. – there was no – there's, I think – no justifiable way to interpret that as threatening free speech. Right. And she sees that as administrative overreach. She sees that as administrative censure, kind of this top-down approach to saying what sort of speech or what sort of speech is, um, uh, you know, appropriate on a university campus. Her, her sort of complaint was that, you know, if students are offended by costumes, they should look away, they should engage in a dialogue with other students. You know, the answer should be more speech and not top-down administrative um, overreach. So that's, that, I took that to be her kind of main point, if you want to put aside her concerns about whether cultural appropriation is in all cases actually bad and whether it's sometimes okay for you to actually be offensive. Um, I took that was her main like free speech 
I guess my my I don't have the email in front of me, but was she was she really criticizing the email that much, or was she? Yeah. So, so this is what's ridiculous about it. She said that a lot of concerned students had been like emailing her about this email, and she's concerned about what this says about Yale culture. So, right. so right. So this is this is what she says. If you see speech you don't like, don't ask for administrative censure. Just either look the other way or talk to the person. So right. she sees an email she doesn't yeah. like. She doesn't look away. She doesn't talk to the office about why she thinks the email is appropriate. Students email her about this email. She doesn't tell them to look away. She doesn't tell them to discuss it with their students. She uses her top-down administrative capacity as the master of a college to send out an email to the whole college, basically saying why some sorts of speech are bad and she doesn't like them and that we shouldn't approve of it. You mean the email? Yeah, on its own terms, the email fails. It's, it's completely... So, okay, fine. That's... But... You don't think that the Yale students overreacted to the email? Because in the end, it was, it, it was a very respectful well, email. It, the it, tone it, of it was not in any mm-hmm. way inflammatory. It wasn't accusatory. It was, it was saying, like, look, here's my view about the, you know, how people should react to costumes. And it differs probably from the, from the email, the person who wrote the email. It might differ from some of yours, but here's mine. I'm not censuring anybody. I'm not telling anybody. I'm not silencing anybody. I'm not. I'm just, this is my view. So what's wrong with that? Well, so, so I think, first of all, like to, to sort of send that in your capacity as master of a college, I think is a little weird. And second of all, I'm, I'm less optimistic about the tone of her email. I think the way it comes across is the same sort of kind of slightly toned, well-meaning but tone-deaf sort of argument uh, and, and phrasing you hear in a lot of, you know, uh, it's, it's very easy if you're sort of not keyed into these issues to just read it as if it were, you know, this polite, completely uncontroversial email. Um, but I think it's reinforcing a lot of the problems that, you know, students of color on campus are facing a lot of things they hear. And it's, I just think it shouldn't have been sent in her capacity as master. I think okay. the sort of views it expresses aren't quite as sort of innocent as, as right. other people might otherwise consider. And again, I think it's, it's, and, it's, yeah. it has this double standard of what sort of free speech well, concerns and I, are. And I think we, we, and something that Tamler and I didn't have much of was, was a sense of context. And, and yeah. I think that's one of the things we're saying is like, or, at least I recall saying was that there is a way of reading that email um, that that I could see could be offensive. And I am I'm now more convinced that in the context of the frustrations that were there, the question of why she even felt the need to send out a a sort of a corrective email, um, just that that decision alone. And maybe this is where we can talk a little bit about the context that these. Yeah. So what is the context? Right. And so I tried a little bit, but I, I fear that I was ineffective and we were ineffective maybe in distinguishing between these two problems, like whether, like how much frustration you must feel as a student who's an underrepresented minority. We focused a lot on yeah. what I still think is just some, some real immature behavior on the part of some of the students. But, uh, but the, but it is, I think a response to, to a lot of frustration that um, that they experience on a daily basis that we don't have too much knowledge yeah. of. So I just want to read. We got a really nice email from um, a woman named Shanique, uh, who is African American, and she she really went out of her way to focus on this. Which again, I think we were trying to separate the the real the the reality of the frustration from the response. But I think it's worth spending some time talking about the reality of the frustration. So I want to read just a, a few quotes um, from her experience. She, 
So a few days before class began, I moved into a dorm where there were 60 to 65 girls. I was one of only three black girls. There were two Asian girls, one biracial girl, and one Latina. It was a shock to my system at 18. My hair was touched without my permission. More than once, I was asked questions about the black male, quote-unquote, anatomy, as well as witnessed a discussion among a group of white girls about whether or not it's okay to say the N-word when you're singing along with a song. It was said that saying the N-word while singing along isn't the same as saying the N-word in another context. Though I was present for the conversation, no one ever asked what I thought or how it made me feel. Now, at 30, I would speak up if the same situation occurred, but at 18, feeling out of place already, I did not want to rock the boat and just make myself feel even more out of place than I already did. Looking back, I was worried about being perceived as the angry black girl, quote unquote, though I am black and the discussion did make me angry. Uh, my point being that I think both of you were too dismissive of some of the things endured by students on campuses. Some of the experiences I had both in and out of the classroom just seemed to reinforce the notion that I was an outsider. Then given a history of slavery, colonialism and white supremacy, those feelings are not unusual. And I agree. I mean, I, uh, I agree with everything there. I mean, and I, and I did. I, I thought we did a better job than I guess we must have of, of saying that they're responding to something that uh, a real issue. And it's not that the issue isn't real. To push back a little bit, you guys were saying things like. Oh, they've never experienced real problems in their lives. They come from extremely privileged positions. I, I didn't say that. I said it, it comes across like that in the in the in the no, video. This is what I'll say, and I'll stick to it, which is I didn't say they didn't experience real problems in their lives. I said that the reaction that they were expressing struck me as particularly immature, given that there's a whole generation of people who experienced far worse things who were effective at protesting without without yelling and spitting. So sure. that okay. said, it doesn't it doesn't take away from these problems. I think that the whole reason that this is especially troubling as an issue is because back then there were laws you could protest and there were things that yeah. you could actually change in society. But how the hell do you get white people to stop touching your hair or to have a real conversation? I don't want to diminish from the frustrations, but there's no way in hell I'm going to say that they are reacting to the same thing that the civil rights movement had to react to. And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. I just, I just, so I, so so I do think to a, to, to a very real extent, the sort of problems that students of color on Yale's campus experience overlap quite a bit with the sort of racism that permeates, you know, pretty much everything. They're, They're treated more coldly. They're more suspicious. There was a, so a year or two ago, there was the son of a New York times columnist, he was, he was a black student, and he had a gun pulled on him by Yale security because he fit the description of someone who had been stealing laptops in a, in a college. But the security officer pulled a gun, and then, like, a few months ago, you know, Yale police released a report, and they were like, oh, the officer acted totally fine. It was, it was totally cool for him to by pull By the way, you know it was a black, black police officer. It was a black police But, I mean, but <laughs> this is the thing. You can have, you know. Uh, no, I know. I just, it's, it's, they, uh, whether that's relevant or not, I don't know. But it, I, I think there, there, there are a lot of cases like this where the same sort of reason – so it's just – these macro racist problems sort of applied in, in one context. And it's, it's the same sort of source and bias. And I do, and I do want to say, to, to back up a little bit, um, the, the student protesters aren't just asking for people to, you know, not touch their hair. I think I emailed you guys this link. Um, a friend of mine, Leela Bresco, who's, uh, she's, she's this fantastic writer. She, she um, does, like, dated wonk journalism at 538. And she compiled a list of sort of, she took all the student demands from all the student protests. And, like, the number one thing was, you know, uh, have more faculty of color, have greater faculty diversity, right. um, have more support for, like, cultural centers, um, have have better like bias, uh, you know, overcoming bias training or whatever. And then like, well, uh, now so okay, I, I want to separate those two things because I really think that one of those things is 
not just unobjectionable, but it's something that should absolutely be encouraged. And that's the increase the number, increase the diversity among the faculty and increase the diversity among the students. What I hesitate about is the second thing that you said, which is the bias training or the, because I am very suspicious of those workshops and of, of a top down approach like that. This is partly my experience in Houston where I I, I find that the stuff is so much healthier just because there just is diversity. Yeah. So, so I, I share some of your skepticism about bias training just from like Having read some of the literature on implicit bias, probably, you know, I'm not an expert, but I've, I've read more than most. I'm, I'm very pessimistic about efforts to reduce that. You know, that being said, I think it's very important for university to try to address this. I mean, I was just reading a study today that uh, actually someone who was tweeting at you guys posted earlier. Um, and it showed that, you know, people with implicit biases, um, if you sort of have them instruct a black student versus a white student, their implicit biases impact the performance of the black student and not the white student at all. So, I mean, you, you have a case where th- this isn't just a matter of making sure professors are saying the right things. It's just literally a matter of educational equality for students of color on campus. But there's no evidence that this stuff is effective. That yeah, I mean, but, 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 but I think, I think you know, that, that's, sort of like, that's sort of a separate discussion. On the one hand, I think we need to recognize this is a serious problem. This is one effort to address that problem. Whether it works is a separate discussion, but it seems like people object in principle as if this is sort of thought police. Oh, no, no, no. My, it's not an in principle okay. objection. From my, it's that I don't, completely don't buy that that will, be, that that will successfully cure people of bias. And, 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 you know, I think it's already having the sort of opposite effect of getting people more, you know, hardened in their bunkers. So, uh, and I want to take a step back. I, Vlad, you you made it sound like I was being light when no, I no. when we're talking about hair, yeah. black people getting yeah. their hair touched. I what I really was using that is as an example yeah. of like the pernicious shit that yeah. that that black Americans have to deal with right. in their everyday life, like getting all of the, all of the little things, like having to worry about, um, you know, wearing your hat backwards. So yeah. I have many conversations with the black students here about the little things that they have to do in order to essentially make white people comfortable. So I, I, I did not mean to make light of this, but rather say like, it's, it's one of those problems that the solution is difficult for this very reason. Like unlike unjust laws, it's unclear, like diagnosing the problem is already controversial enough in the psychological literature. And then, and then having a solution is even harder. And so I, all of that stuff, like I even believe that like at some level it could be even more pernicious than, you know, like what Malcolm X used to say, like at least I know where the KKK stands. Yeah. Like it's really hard when you think, I, I think when you, when you think that you are actually safe and then you hear some of the comments just come out of some people's mouth. I totally think that this is an issue that needs to be addressed. It's an empirical question as to how to address it. And I fear, along with Tamler, that what you're getting and what I hear on these committees that I sit in on is this such a resistance to anything. White people, as Key and Peele say, like racist is like the white equivalent of the N word, <laughs> right? Like call a white person a racist and watch their reaction. Like yeah. it is it is just almost hilarious if it weren't so sad. Yeah. And sort of mandatory anti-bias training might just – just yeah. at an empirical level might have the wrong uh, – so I don't know what the right solution 
yeah. is. And, and I do want to, so, so I didn't mean to be hard on you, David, but I just don't want Tamo to feel like we're ganging up on him. Yeah, yeah. So. You're ganging up on me too. <laughs> I think my views are more progressive than either of yours on this, but in, part in what, just to, possible sense of the word just, progressive. Just to build on what Dave just said, um, so he can then distance himself from it. Uh, <laughs> I think there is a lot of uncertainty as to how to address these real issues. And what you sometimes don't see on the part of some of the activists of your ilk is a recognition that this is a really tough problem. There seems to be too much certainty, too much confidence, too many demands. I mean, you know, all the apologies in the Amherst uprising that were demanded by these students, I mean, I I, I think that that shows an unwillingness to listen to other ideas and other proposals. And that's at the heart of what I think the best people are worried about when they worry about free expression on campus is that certain people are just getting shouted down because they're not towing the party line. I'm, I, I'm kind of so I'm, I'm sort of skeptical about that. Um, so, so, so first, I, I think it's it's particularly tricky for student activists. You know, I mentioned this in your email. If if they were more sort of wishy-washy in their demands, if they were just like, hey, let's put together a committee and figure out what the best way to do this is. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure many people would take them seriously. They wouldn't be right. able to get the same amount of traction. If they didn't have concrete demands, you'd be like, oh, look, it's just, you know, all sound and no substance. They're just, exp- you know, it's, it, it, they, they'd sort of be criticized either way. And, and I'm very sympathetic to the sort of frustration behind sure. all of this. And, you know, the, and, and I think it's worth mentioning that sort of time scale a university student and a university administrator are working on are very different. Um, so, so if you're a university administrator, it's one thing to say, okay, let's put together a committee, figure out what the best way to prevent bias seeping in to say how black students are graded versus white students. But that's totally fine. That's going to take a few years. You know, that's a lifetime if you're a student in college. It's all going to take a few. Th- this but is it's just thing. going to. Like, I mean, whether they like it or but, not, but, it's but, going to take but, that. But that's, right? I, I, I sort of see why both sides are frustrated. On the one hand, if you're a student and this, you know, you're, if you're feeling very affected and this is, this is something you're very upset about, and rightly so, the fact that like we'll worry you know we'll get to it in two years after we do this committee um that's you know that's not exactly a, a very easy pull as well and I'm, and I'm very sympathetic to the fact that they want sure. you know concrete things done now even if it's if it ends up not being actionable like so so for the yale demands you know one of the things they asked president salve to do was to rename the two colleges after um people of color uh, which, which I think is a very legitimate demand. But the thing is, that's the Yale Corporation's decision. It's not something Peter Salve right. can do. Right. And, and so, so th- there's this trade-off between having something concrete and actionable and immediate versus something a little bit more... more re- well, but so so I, I'm sympathetic to why students err one way and not the other. Well, so, and this is, this is what I think one of the things that, that um, we need to do. And, uh, you know, one of the criticisms that I leveled, which may or may not be fair to the students, but it is just sort of true, is that they're miscalibrated in what a, an administration can and cannot do. As you say, the Yale Corporation yeah. makes these decisions. Same thing with us. I mean, and how to change those things is, is something that, that undergrads deserve to learn like they they deserve to learn how how exactly universities work so that they can ha- so their voice can be real because i feel like they'll be dismissed um another thing i want to say and this is you know this uh this woman ivy onyedor sorry if i pronounced her name wrong uh, she was tweeting us today and said you know that a lot of the protests were respectful so so i i do want to say you know 
like I don't know enough about yeah. like I clearly I thought her point was the respectful ones get kind of ignored though yeah. also yeah maybe I, in, yeah. I just which is I'm sure true I mean yeah. this is this is any activist yeah. has to to get attention you need to present your extreme elements I mean, but, I mean there's something to be said that you know black students haven't just been saying it this year I mean they've been saying it for the last 5, 10, 20 right. years and you know, it's it's. I don't think it's a coincidence that now sort of concrete changes are starting to happen. Uh, I would love to live in a world where you know the the way to go about um, fixing universities is to have you know nice, respectful protests where you don't yell at professors and have completely reasonable demands. But I mean, I just unfortunately I don't think that's the world we live in, and I think that's as much the university's fault as it is the students who are protesting's fault. Yeah, but the thing the thing is, progress has been made. I mean, yeah. uh, it, and I still just shirk at the difference between students making lists of demands with a timeline and handing it over not to me that's not paying too much attention to how how you could really change things and i i know that there's there's a frustration in the powerlessness um but that is is just you know i have frustration in my powerlessness at affecting real change in my school like yeah. we've tried We've tried hard to to hire certain underrepresented, underrepresented minority faculty members and been shut down by the administration who had previously pledged that there would be funds available, but they gave us an economic reason for why we couldn't. It's frustrating. It really is frustrating. But I can't ju- I can't write a letter to the president and say that we demand as the psychology department to have funds released in, within forty eight hours. And I and I think that like for whatever small percentage of students who are behind this, like I, I like. I don't want to take away from the frustrations that I certainly don't experience, but I can say that's just not effective. That's just, it, it just, it puts people on the defensive. I don't know what the solution is, but it just, it, it sounds just fucking whack to like issue a list of demands with a timeline. So, by, by the way, Ivy, the person who tweeted us, has a podcast called We Are The Get. I listened to a little bit of it today. It looks really interesting. It's, it's a po- That's, I will definitely check that out. I also want to say I do feel a little uncomfortable kind of being the voice of the student protesters right now. Yeah, well, nobody can be the voice. And, you know, actually, <laughs> yeah. actually one of the things that, um, that Shanique was calling us out on was not having a person of yeah. color or underrepresented minority. And I, I wrote back to her. First of all, I told her I'm Latino, um, but, yeah, but it's like Jew. Nobody cares. Nobody it's cares. not like Jew because I actually, I, as I was saying to her, I know Tamler didn't bother to read my response. But well, that's because Dave was very upset that I responded to her first. It was really funny to see that. <laughs> it was just well, because I have real work to do. But uh, but one of the things I was saying to her is like we, we will take we'd love to take suggestions of having more underrepresented minorities, but that you know having enough black American friends who are free enough to express to me that they like Vlad expressed, don't feel comfortable representing the entirety of black America. It's putting someone in an awkward position to say like, uh, you know, they're, they're no, they're not MLK. Um, But, but increasing the diversity of guests, of course, we're all for it. So I've been trying to convince Paul Bloom of this. 
Um, and I'd love to hear what your guys' thoughts are. I'm pretty sure that I think the underrepresentation of minorities is a bigger free speech. So, Tamler, you just made a Jew joke, right? If suddenly, like, a bunch of people protest and are like, no more Jew jokes on Very Bad Wizards, like, that, you know, that might suck for you. You might be a little more self but that's not going to appreciably af- impact the sort of ideas and perspectives that's, you have on your show. That's a, that's a central part of the show. Is that a central part of the show? <laughs> well, it's, it's pretty for, much, it's for, like half of Dave's contribution is... <laughs> <laughs> but 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 I, but but uh, to, to get more serious for a second, I, th- I think you know if, if we're thinking which is a bigger effect to to the sort of marketplace of ideas playing out on your show, I think like a lack of Jew jokes pales in comparison to say a lack of you know diversity, be it um, black students, Native Amer- or black uh, guests, Native American guests, right? Um, you, know, you know what have you? The, the, there's there's just a fundamental lack of perspective, and there's something to be said, especially in how it plays on academic departments where you look at sort of what sort of views and what sort of um, positions are seen as core to, to uh, a discipline. There was this interview I just read, I'm blanking on who, who did it, but she was making this point, like, if you want to study the metaphysics of chairs, that's core philosophy. If you want to do the metaphysics of race, you have to publish in a specialized journal and take a specialized class. You know, if you're studying yeah, yeah, yeah. European history, if you're studying oh. Western philosophy, that's intro classes. If you want to do anything that's not white dudes, you're on the periphery. And, and there's, there's, there are all these issues of what Wait, sort why of... Why can't black people study the metaphysics of chairs? <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah, they, Vlad. <laughs> they can, but, but there's something to be said that the way academic departments are structured, it's seen as neutral, right? It seems like caring about the metaphysics of chairs is neutral, but I mean, it really, they're, they're, they're different. You know, there's a worldview associated with whiteness that's easy to forget. Like, it's a, this is... I, I, I 100% agree with that, and it's a huge problem in philosophy. Maybe yeah. it is, you know, I think the subject matter is geared towards white males on the spectrum. Uh, let's like just call it the close like, can we to, just call it the Jewish problem? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> see see what I mean, Vlad? We can't we can't lose that. That's so, so I was rereading Jonathan Heights the The Righteous Mind recently and he goes on this really weird kind of uncomfortable tangent where he speculates about whether Kant and Jeremy Bentham had Asperger's and then kind of used that as a way to sort of deride their moral theories, which I thought was really weird and kind of not okay. <laughs> See, uh, I, I don't, I mean, I think, you know, whether it's okay or not, but I think there's something to the way, I mean, I talk about this on the, this is a separate issue, but it's in some ways not separate because I also think it, it, it has the effect of excluding women, not because yeah. women can't play that game if they really wanted to, but I think a lot of women don't want to. And, and, and a lot of people, you know, from more diverse backgrounds don't want to do that because there's more, you know, philosophy is supposed to be about life and especially, you know, and ethics is supposed to be about life. And, and, you know, this is not life. This is, these are puzzles. These are, yeah. which by uh, the way, we got some great, one of the, the emails that was so positive that Tamler didn't believe it on, on our previous episode with Bell Tiberius was, um, that somebody said for the, for the first time, they actually felt positively affected by philosophy oh um, that's wonderful of, because of the discussion we're having right. about values and and life yeah, and i think you know like i think women are are more likely not again not because women are necessarily better at it but because i don't know i don't want to make any essentialist yeah, claims I, here i don't want to make but yeah. um just as an aside you don't have to because like the experience of women in society is different and and I, right. i'll never forget this I, i'm sure i've mentioned it multiple times there's this uh um, Iconoclasts episode with Dave Chappelle and Maya Angelou that is just yeah, so good. Um, but at one point he just says uh, at the end when he's talking about his kids, he says, 
I hope that by the time if they sh- the question was whether or not he cares if his kids grow up to do comedy, he just says, I just hope that by the time their adults race jokes won't be funny. And and I thought that was so insightful, which is like, you know, the experience of a black American without making any essentialist claims is so radically different that um, that, of course, they're going to have different perspectives. And for women, I think that they might have different perspectives for, you know, yeah. through no, you know, no uh, biological reason. Tamar, I think I think your stepmom would say it's because of the choices they make. So we don't know. Really she wouldn't. Questions. That's not her. <laughs> she she recognizes. I mean, look, I know she has a persona, but but, you know, we talk about this stuff all the time. I do think she thinks that there's been a lot of progress, especially for for women in uh, in America. And that sometimes uh, women exaggerate the problems that they face or, or experience. And, um, but, but, you know, when it comes to race, she totally recognizes, I mean, I, I the black experience in America is, it's, Rough. Yeah, yeah, no, it, and, and there's no denying that. And I'm, and, and I'm, it exists on college campuses. It exists in every city, every, you know, there's, there's absolutely like, that's the thing I think that we probably didn't get across enough. The one thing about the choices are, you know, and that people say, I wonder what you think about this, is that some of what's being asked or demanded infantilizes students. You know, like you have to walk on eggshells around them, you know, that any little remark that you make will send them into some sort of trauma. Hey, I, you, it's not my experience. Yeah. With no, people. as, as, like, as yeah. you defended, yeah. you know, and you defended the the opposing view, yeah. and that I think actually, like, I in any like capacity that I can, I I hope that that I do this. But um, in just talking to students in office hours about like their experience, there is this weird. Uh, this is what I'm really concerned about that. The climate right now is getting worse and worse where people are uh, – where underrepresented minorities, students of colors, people, people of different sexual orientation, whatever, they, they are rightfully frustrated enough that they finally feel like this – I can join this movement and give myself a voice. You know who's coddled is the professors right now. <laughs> They're pretty. The professors are pretty coddled because all of a sudden, their main complaint is that they have to walk on eggshells around students. And if they bothered to say, even talk to a black student who was eighteen and and in a dorm room full of white women, like they're walking on egg. They're practiced. They're well practiced yeah. in walking on eggshells in a way that all of a sudden professors are are sort of whining about now. But I fear that this is now just, it's a, it's a sort of perfect storm of leading to a failure to actually talk to each other about something right. real where, where people would be so gonna make that afraid. Worse. Yeah. People are so afraid to actually ask, say a, a, a black student, dude, like, tell me about like, like your, when's the last time you experienced like something uncomfortable. And I think that Chandler, the point you were making is, if you are the sort of person who who has demonstrated that you actually care and that you're open to hearing about all students' experiences, then it it will be more safe for you. Um, yeah. But yeah. but the but we should be comfortable recognizing that it might not be. We might actually have a student come into our class yeah. and decry us as racist, and we have to deal with that. We have to say, like, am I in this position? Like, have I done that? If so, then what do I do? 
And if not, then what do I say? And we, we should ball, we should, you know, get some to be sexist, get balls and man up. Right. But that, no, that's, I totally agree with that. You would hope that a student would have the courage to come in and, and say that if you said something in class that made them feel uncomfortable, but that's easy to say. It's, 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 and much harder to actually do if you're the student, you know, go in and tell your professor, look, you know, and so in that sense, there is some pressure to make sure that doesn't happen, even if no student has ever done that to you. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean that you haven't made students no, feel absolutely. uncomfortable. So you know? I, try, I yeah. say, t- I, I try to say, tell me. Yeah. Like, you know, but easier said than done. But, you know. You know, this is, it's funny. I know people of your ilk, Vlad, don't care about this as much. You know, people who are religious, it, that that is a group right now that a is not very popular among academics and b there isn't much pressure to to self censor around religious people but this is one of the things that i've said in my classes like look you know i have my views and you'll probably hear about them but you know if you if if there's something that's making you cuz i've had students in tears just cuz we're reading the bot, you know, like Genesis or something like that, but we're not reading it as if it's the literal word yeah. of God. But yeah. it, it, it to foster a kind of environment where the, people are comfortable doing that is, I think, the the way to go. And I wonder if yeah. one aspect of the protests are, are are they getting us closer to that or getting us farther away from that? Well, so is a question. I mean, I, I suspect it's getting us closer to that. I mean, so so th- this is something that bothers me, and I think I'm going to tie it back to something David said earlier. This feeling of like self censorship and walking on eggshells. Um, there there is this double standard where when suddenly, you know, let's be frank, mostly white, mostly older, mostly male professors start experiencing that, they take that as a form of uh, a sort of anti-free speech thing. Like the idea that trigger warnings or anti-free speech is ridiculous because it's not actually censoring anyone. It's just giving more speech. But it, but, but it sort of creates this discomfort and, and walking on eggshells feeling. But, but again, like David said, that's, that's the sort of experience of any minority student in a space like Yale where it's but That's obvious. not a double standard because they would say, well, I, that's very unfortunate. <laughs> they yeah. shouldn't but, feel but, that but, way. No, but one's treated as a free speech issue and the other isn't. So, so minority students aren't having their voices heard. They're feeling like they need to self-censor. And that's not a free speech. It's just like fire isn't out there ad- advocating for increasing campus diversity. It's not advocating. No, it's, it's advocating right. against trigger warnings. And, okay. then, you know, right. surprise, surprise. It's, it's the sort of concerns that, you know, the, again, frankly, the mostly white, mostly older, mostly male professors care about. Um, so there, there's this double standard there that I find really infuriating. And it's, it's doubly so because it sort of hides behind this politically neutral, like, can't we all agree free expression is good, but actually it's just inherently and insidiously political. Um, so I find that very frustrating. And I, I, I do agree, you know, on, on one sense, when you're asking these professors to think twice about may, maybe they're going to say something racist, or maybe they're going to say something that is going to make a religious student feel uncomfortable, the flip side of that is you're making the students of color in the classroom and the, and the religious students in the classroom feel like they're less on eggshells. And I think that's as equally, if not more so, oppressive. Well, I, I, again, I don't know if that's true. I, I think it's possible or it's possible that if you were able to foster this more open kind of environment, like the kind of environment you have when you're among good people and good friends where you can say some pretty offensive shit and it's actually brings it's it's a sign that you're closer it's a sign that you're more comfortable rather than a sign that you're less comfortable so that's self-selecting 
Um, I'm worried that's not a universal thing. You're just, so, you know, if you, I mean, it might be, if you're the it type might of person right? that regularly but... rib your Jewish friends for being Jewish, you know, you're not going to have very close Jewish friends who don't, you know, who don't like being ribbed. So, sure. I mean, it, I mean, you might be right, but I don't, there's not research. There's no research sure, yeah. on that, that, you know, when professors self-censor, you know, past a certain point that makes students of color more feel freer to express yeah. their own views. I mean, it, it could be true, but I, I don't see any necessarily re- reason to think that that, that that is true. I, I, but I don't, again, I don't know, but we got this email from this guy, Hans Hamline. This was one of the people who wrote us from the other side. This person said that he did feel like his generation is less comfortable being uncomfortable. And he said, even as I write that, it seems obviously true. I mean, but I mean more along the line with it is okay to disagree with someone else and to talk to them about it, but through the continued use of texting and other non-in-person mediums, people are making themselves blind, blind to the fact that that isn't how the world works. You know, and then he ends with a university is not a safe space. If you need a safe space, leave, go home, hug your teddy and suck your thumb until ready for university. So that's that's Richard. He's quoting Richard Dawkins then. I I think he's not. But but the idea is that it is, you know, this is a place where you should be feel free to disagree and feel free to if, if, you know, if if your professor says something that pisses you off, you should be able to to say that. And again, I, I, I get that that's. So easy to say from the white professor's See, point of but those, view. But. but those sorts of things, yeah, I think I feel like there's such slippage and equivocation on on what is meant by safe space, safe space and freedom of speech where, you know, like obviously like you want you want to be able to assign Huck Finn if you're if you're a professor of American literature. But I don't think there's anything wrong with calling for self-censorship when you call your female student sweetie. Um, and, well, course, and, right, 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 but, right, but that's yeah. exactly you know that that is the sort of censorship that I'm all all for, and that's the sort of thing yeah. that diversity training isn't going to give anybody. Um, well, I mean, so like w- when you put it in that sort of kind, I think I can imagine diversity training convincing old white professors to not call, or sorry, old old men professors to not call their they're sort of women in their class sweeties. There's a non-zero <laughs> contingent, sweetie, sweetie, where they just Sweet, calm down. <laughs> See, I'm calling a man, sweetie, so, just, so, so that it's okay now. I think there's a You look a so large... cute when you're angry, sweetie. Uh, <laughs> you guys, it is so nice to be on the show, I just want to say. I've listened to you guys, and just to be right in the middle of it, it's, it's delightful. Um, I was fucking saying something. Yeah, so so there. I think there's a, a large... like. The, I don't think it's all coming from a place of malice. I think if you genuinely told a lot of these old people, like there was going to be the sort of Harold Blooms at Yale, right? Who's kind of, we all know he likes, you know, he sexually harasses students. He's like kind of a crotchety old man. There, for every Harold Bloom, I think there are like two or three genuine old dudes who just don't know better. And if you sit them down and say like, listen, you can't, re- don't like creepily touch your female students. Don't call them sweetie. It makes right. them feel uncomfortable. Right. I think they're going to, I think they're going to start doing it. I, I, yeah. But uh, see, that's, that's a different thing. Sitting them down and saying that rather than, Taking, putting them and everybody else in a mandatory class yeah. are are two, two different strategies when it comes well, to people like that. Yeah, I'm I'm worried about the mandatory class thing mostly because I'm worried about who's in charge of the content there, yeah. and and I do I do think there's a problem with a solution that involves education for some of the people who are sort of uh, un, unwittingly doing this. I don't know what the right solution is, and I wanted to say. 
um, earlier, like half an hour earlier. And I think the, the number one thing really has to be that we need more minority professors. Yeah. And that, that right there is just such yeah. the fucking low hanging fruit, man. It's yeah. just like, Jesus, like, like it, sidesteps so many problems <laughs> to actually have a black person or whatever Latino person or whatever to, there to represent that point of view in a faculty meeting to yeah. be somebody who a student automatically might feel comfortable talking to, you know, Bill Cosby's aside. Yeah. Um, and that wasn't but, a Cosby so, rape joke, but rather it, his beef with Aaron Magruder and like, you know, like the, it's not. Look like at that self-censoring. That wasn't yeah. a Bill Cosby rape joke. <laughs> no, it was it was a reference to the fact that like it just just by dint of being African-American doesn't mean you're going to be supportive. <laughs> Wait, so, 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 David, it's, it's, do you think there's tension there between. So on the one hand, you're like these students are expressing themselves like unideally. They're being sort of too too rude, too unrealistic. But I mean, it looks like Cornell is taking at least priming themselves to take sort of genuine, potentially positive steps in response to things happening at other universities. Yeah, I worry about, so I worry in a way that Tamler will make fun of me and call me Kantian. I worry, <laughs> I worry about, the, about making changes because of fear of students, like throwing a hissy fit. But so I want to make a change because I think it's a real problem, not yeah. because I want to preempt like, PR disasters and enrollment <laughs> numbers to go down, yeah. but I guess at the end of the day it doesn't matter if if uh, I just don't I just don't want my students to feel as if flailing about is the right solution. Okay, so like I I think I agree with that. I'm worried it might be a little reductive of exactly what the protests are embodying. I think that's a small yeah, part no, of it, and the rest fair. I've been very. Uh, like the, the, the I'm, I've actually been very enheartened and, uh, you know, my cold dead heart's a little warmed seeing the sort of <laughs> student response to the protests at Yale. I think, you know, it, it was very supportive and very wonderful. And um, I thought the Yale administration handled it actually really well. You know, Jonathan Haidt said that it was what, capitulating to victimhood culture or something. Yeah, ridiculous yes. like I think that, that, that uh, word cloud of t- uh, John Haidt's recent <laughs> tweets just has victim, just has the word victimhood and God, like then articles. Not, and uh, nothing, the, nothing exists. <laughs> Exemplifies the reason we need diverse viewpoints in the social sciences than the fact that you can just fucking name something victimhood culture <laughs> and feel like you can get away with it. That's just fucking ridiculous. I think John so. Has a we're we're, we're all in agreement on that that there's a yeah. real problem, and it seems like if there's any point of disagreement, it's on the question of what's the most effective way of responding. But I wonder if there's one philosophical issue we differ on. Like sometimes I I get from your tweets and from uh, some of the things and and, and from your emails that it's almost conceptually impossible to overreact to to, to something if you are a member of, you know, a minority group that – if you're offended by it, by definition, almost it's offensive and no. should be. Uh, and so I'm wondering if that's if I'm getting that, if that's a correctly characterizes your view, um, because, y- you know, like is hypersensitivity impossible or is it people like height shouldn't automatically assume that people are being hypersensitive? <laughs> 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 
So I've, I think I have two sort of thoughts and responses to that. Um, the first being, I think oftentimes claims about oversensitivity just amount to the fact that I disagree about how bad this problem is. So there's that one issue from the, from the get-go. And second, I think this is, you know, I could be completely bullshitting right now, making it sound philosophical. I think there's this huge epistemic issue involved. Um, where the sorts of problems people are having right now are just categorically different than the problems they were having 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, where someone would just say to your face, and he's like, nope, I'm treating you worse because you're black. Now, you know, right. it's, it's, it's for you know, good reasons. It's impolite to tell black people you're treating them worse because they're black, even if that is what you're doing. There's this episode of Masters of None that I think highlights this really well. Um, Aziz Ansari's character is sitting at a table with a bunch of his friends. His girlfriend... Um, uh, another female friend, um, and then two of the dudes. And then the director of the commercial he's working on sort of comes to the table, introduces himself to everyone, and skips right over the two women at the table. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Dev, Dev's girlfriend, Aziz Ansari's character's name's Dev, she, she gets really upset. She's like, hey, did you just see that? He's like, see what? And, and she was like, he just totally skipped over. He's like, oh, you're being, you know, he's like, oh, you probably just, you know, you could come up with a million innocuous reasons for why right. this might have happened. And the thing is, it, it could have, it could 100% be a completely innocuous reason. It could entirely be just, you know, a complete fluke that he just happened to skip over the women at the table. But Tam was not asking yeah. that. I mean, I think that, that, it's totally true that there are things that deserve a response. Yeah. But what Tam was asking is, do you, if if the woman were to yeah. start yelling in the man's face at the table, is do you allow that that yeah. is an overreaction to the problem we have just outlined and we all so, agree? So is so is the issue oversensitivity or overreaction? Well, so, so no, some, I mean, I guess, I, yeah, I conflated the two. So yeah. there's overreaction and then there's hypersensitivity. But I guess I want to know for both. Okay, let mean, me it seems to me possible to be hypersensitive in the sense that you just, there's just a certain category of things that just you shouldn't get all indignant about yeah. you know so, I mean, so, even if they are genuinely reflecting some kind of bias or some yeah. sort of thing and then there's the question of no here is a real issue but the response is out of proportion yeah so so in terms of the hypersensitivity thing i think again ultimately this is sort of an epistemic question you just can't know at any given point whether it's like a genuine instance of bigotry or whether it's just sort of this innocuous thing right so I'm sure conceptually I would say that, yes, there are cases where people overreact. I'm not convinced you can know in any given case whether it's in, or whether where people are hypersensitive. Um, I don't know if you can say in any one given case whether hypersensitivity right. is actually happening. And that's just, okay. an, that's just an epistemic problem, particularly, you know, coming from, uh, you know, a straight white dude. Um, uh, it's just the, the sort of things I experience. It's very easy to blind Wait, yourself. I know. Everyone is so surprised <laughs> about that. <laughs> <laughs> you would not be. It's just I think it was the skinny jeans. So I don't. So I don't want to go on too much sidetrack. I was fucking wearing skinny jeans before. It's cool to wear skinny jeans. Wait. I was in high school going to the Salvation Army buying girls jeans because they didn't so, make men I'm jeans. So confused about the hand job you've been giving me this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> so disingenuous. It's a uh, awesome. It's a takeaway from the experience. <laughs> totally. uh, where the I fuck actually, was I? Well, I'll, I'll make an even stronger claim okay. that I, I think that um, that there's very few cases in which people are being hypersensitive. I actually think that, like, if if anything, people from our perspective um, radically underestimate how many times people have actually not said something 
um, when they right. totally deserved to. Um, and and I think that this is you hate the term microaggression, but like a, there are a, a class of things that just like that black people in America have just been putting up with for so long that if anything, yeah. they, they've been so resilient um, as a culture, uh, like in terms of not responding in, in, in to, to right. a lot of these behaviors. these kinds of things that just happen right. all the time. Yeah. I guess I agree with that. I mean. Just on on the term microaggression, in the lost episode with Paul that we didn't have, we were saying, or I was saying, that I, I do think the language is a problem. Like <laughs> yeah, safe so, space, microaggression, trigger warnings. Like <laughs> you could you could call those yeah. like those things something different, and I think people would yeah. be a lot you know friendlier to all of them. So this because is, yeah. you know yeah. this is a pet peeve I have about. I just hate all jargon. Just yeah. on a personal level. Um, yeah. So, you know, so I do a lot of freelance writing on the side. I always make sure and never to use any, like, ridiculous science jargon. And similarly, like, when I'm discussing these issues of social justice, you know, I, I kind of cringe even using the phrase social justice because it feels jargony. There, there is this worry of you, once you, once you go into that mode, you're just speaking to, it's almost like a little... They're shibboleths. Yeah, they're, sh- they're yeah. yeah. So it's all sort of But it's worse than that. It sounds, it, it, it kind of plays into the whole coddling worldview I mean, you know think, safe space sure but i mean i okay so that may be true i'm i'm you know i'll be agnostic about that <laughs> do you uh do you consider dave's apartment to be a safe space it is the, it is the safest space there's there's this beautiful rug and there's some coloring books in the corner and some puppies so it's um it's, and the the chains really aren't even that uncomfortable <laughs> <laughs> there is some pretty uh Serious S and M stuff going on. Um, this is why we do an audio podcast. <laughs> I'm I, I'm naked from the waist down right now. You can't tell on Skype, but, but I, yeah, unfortunately, I want to see what goes into those skinny jeans. <laughs> so have right. we? I, I, I know we had already solved this issue, I think we, but have we, we yeah, extra solved, solved it? We've solved it more. We've, <laughs> <laughs> we're piling on now so, with this. So, so but, but have I convinced you guys that the Christakis email was bad and that? Uh, Foundations for Individual Rights and Education, uh, that sort of organization, that they're inherently political and they're not neutral in free speech. Well, I, I, yeah. So the, you know, like fire and stuff like that. I, you know, I get into Twitter battles probably yeah. uh, with the fire people just because I think they cherry pick their their examples and that they inflate and yeah. exaggerate the problem. They blow it completely out of proportion. So, so yeah, absolutely. And I share your frustration about the hypocrisy of it. Yes. But that's not something I needed convincing of. Okay. Uh, yeah, like I said, I think if if there's any difference, it's more in terms of the most effective way of addressing the issue and also maybe on that last issue about hypersensitivity and, and overreaction. Yeah. Um, and, and again, I, th- I want to stress, I think it's very easy for, for people who aren't in the sort of beleaguered position to sort of dictate what is and isn't hypersensitivity, what is and isn't right. an overreaction. But that doesn't mean that they might not stumble on being right sometimes. Sure. I, yeah. I actually think that, that here's what I, I would, I would happily take an overreaction in my office because I feel like I I could right. I could be a person who who could be constructive with it, um, but not all my colleagues will deal with it the same way. So as a purely pragmatic and non sort of, there is a, a a way in which I think that we need to communicate to students. And I think again, and I said it, I I think I said it in the last episode. There is a, something that we can say as professors 
what can we do? So, so, so Tim, maybe this is leading us to feel, I don't know if we want to wrap up. Um, I would love to know. Probably need to soon. Yeah. Okay. But ask away. I don't mean to silence you, shut you down. It's your, I, this, this yeah. is why it doesn't matter. <laughs> That's true. You I can can't, do. you can't silence me. It's, 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 <laughs> it's literally not, impossible to silence. It's been tried. Me, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, how do you feel about the coddling of the American mind Atlantic feature? Oh, I hate that piece. I hate it. Thank you. It. Like, I thought yeah. it was. I've read it. Uh, I hate it with the passion. I probably hate it as much as you do. I hate, because I'm I, glad we agree on something. But for, for different, different reasons? reasons. Okay, what are your because different reasons? Because he thinks that it's uh, that coddling is bad. It just doesn't happen that much. Is that your? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, I think that in those instances, some of the instances, again, I need to know more about it to be certain about. It, but some of the instances sounded bad. But the idea that this is generalized to an entire generation of students to me is is preposterous. It yeah. doesn't fit my experience at all. It doesn't reflect yeah. any of my experience in academia. And I've asked friends about this. Them, have you experienced any of this kind of silencing, this chilling effect? <laughs> I, you know, like the. The other one that I hated was, I am a liberal and my liberal students yes. terrify me. Yes, that, that guy is like, awful. talk about, <laughs> talk about a somebody who's coddled. And, 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 and there was, as a feminist, I hate women. <laughs> you know, like so, we're totally in agreement. Those things drove me crazy. I mean, if you look at my Twitter feed for a while, it was all about trigger warnings, but it was just like this whole thing is just an invention. This is a f complete fabrication. Like, if you read all these magazines, you would think that trigger warnings are mandated on every campus, and it's just not at all true. The only reason most professors even know about this term is just because of the articles but do you, uh, but you do seem to think trigger warnings are bad no i like okay. i said in my the thing with my stepmother like there are times where it's fine and there are times where it shouldn't be necessary and it shouldn't and it probably it should rarely be mandated True. you know you know dave is the general principle you know abstract ideal principle guy i <laughs> i'm more like case by case basis yeah. but 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 the issue the, but the way it's written about it's this massive you know all of a sudden professors right. have to like put trigger warnings in the great gapsy and the first critique <laughs> by kant and like all oh, these know, things. You totally want a trigger warning for Kant. Don't lie. I do. Yeah, absolutely. That's one I agree with. <laughs> but so this is this is so when people were like losing their shit over the fact that um, I think someone at U Chicago wanted a trigger warning in Ovid, like Ovid's Metamorphosis. Like oh, fucking, that's a dirty I, book. Everyone's yeah, fucking losing their shit, and like it does, it graphically <laughs> depicts rape. And why the fuck shouldn't you have like, hey, people who have been raped in class, heads up. It's like, yeah. and I, you know, and and not even people who've been raped. Like, I think that is. I, I was talking to a student journalist here about this. So I was like, you know, you're just an ass if you don't give people a heads up that <laughs> what they're about to read or see. Like, I, I mean, I think this is this is something that is such common sense that you're sort of an ass. Like, I think that if anything, this has caused people to resist because of the label trigger warning, caused them to like ironically resist giving any warning whatsoever. But like, yeah. what kind of an ass would you be if you're going to say, but I, well, you'd be Jonathan Haidt, right? This is this. So he has like the worst argument in that Atlantic essay where he's basically uh, just like, well, exposure therapy is the best treatment for PTSD. I, so therefore, if you just like spring, PTSD on students in class. If you, you just, you, they'll somehow magically get better. I want John. I want John. God bless him. But I want him to uh, try to use the N word as exposure therapy in the next group of black people that he sees, and see if scientifically this is actually uh, like a viable. Like the the fact so, that you would even dare to bring in 
fucking therapy exposure therapy as an example for why you're right about oh i think i think uh your stepmom has made similar arguments tamler well look we 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 got into it a little bit about trigger warnings when i was describing the thing with the book i i will say like with the you know with ovid there's nothing wrong with saying something about it and you probably should but i again i wouldn't want a committee set up to like tell you professors when they should and shouldn't you know do it and what are a list of books that you have to do them and what are the books that that's the thing and that's not happening widely yeah it's not happening at all it's not even it's not happening widely is there are zero universities where that's happening students at oberlin suggested it and then everyone lost their shit it's like exactly that's right i just would you know i genuinely not have huck finn be one of those books that you take turns reading aloud (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> wow do you hate free expression david is that... no yeah. it's a great key and peel skit i feel where chilled they have an app. I, I think we've we've disagreed less than you've let on tamler so <laughs> well and i i think that like going ahead like talking about solutions to the problems is is the way yeah. okay, i'm i'm tired of talking about the problems themselves thanks vlad for joining us oh no thank you for it's been so fun thank you guys uh, i appreciate it vlad who's haven't given and given this away vlad is actually sitting next to me in yeah. my apartment we've been Ithaca. we've been kind of awkwardly sharing a mic yeah, and it's been very intimate vlad is is actually from local yeah i'm uh i'm in town visiting my mom and he's, she's she lives in Ithaca. he's local and organic which means that tamler would eat you oh that's <laughs> That's, yeah, you're free range. <laughs> I made him run around just right before uh, the I'm grass fed. Before also. the hand job, I just love grass. <laughs> so maybe maybe we can tie this into we can discuss veganism. Well, yeah, later. veganism maybe for the next two hours. But a longer Josh Noob impression. Yeah, oh, that's, I'm, that I want to up really, the ante. That seems really unfair, Tamler. I think you should let Vlad <laughs> talk about veganism uh, for as long as he wants. But that's just that's just my considered opinion. I ran a survey. Um, <laughs> People seem to agree, so I think uh, I think we should reconsider our folk intuitions about whether Vlad should talk about veganism. I, I, I could listen to you do that for like six hours. All right, I think that's a sign that uh, I need to go. But yeah, thanks so much, Vlad, and thank you guys.